Have you ever seen a, a photo mosaic? On the screen, we, we have a, a one by a, a famous artist named Robert Silvers. It was created in 2002. And it, what it is, it's a collection of tons of, of photos uh, that are kind of put together to show a big photo. So you can actually purchase this particular piece of art uh, for $20,000 from a famous art gallery in Toronto. When you zoom in on a photo mosaic like that, it, it's hard to tell what you're seeing. It's just a collection of a bunch of different images that seem random and chaotic. It might even seem like the artist has no design in what he's doing. I wonder if there's anyone that's, oh, you've already figured it out. I was going to see if you knew, but there it is. What is it? Mona Lisa, right? There is this, all these tiny images zoomed in, but when you zoom out and get perspective, you can see what it is that the artist is trying to portray. Uh, photo mosaics are more than just an interesting type of modern art. I think they're also a great analogy to make sense of the book of the Bible that we're studying today, the book of Zechariah. It's uh, 520 B.C., and the Jews are returning from their Babylonian exile. They're, they're rebuilding the temple. We saw a bit of that last week as we studied the book of Haggai. And Zechariah, prophesying at the same time, he wants God's people to know that their hopes and dreams will not be fulfilled when the temple is complete. They're going to have to wait. But what are God's people waiting for? Or rather, who are they waiting for? That's the question we want to answer from the book of Zechariah this morning. So if you're not already there, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn again to the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah is unique to the minor prophets for a couple of reasons. One, it's the longest of the minor prophets. It's 14 chapters long. So if we were to sit down and read the book from the beginning to end this morning, it would take most of our worship service. Uh, so compared to Obadiah at one chapter, Haggai at two, uh, Zechariah is pretty imposing. It's a long book. It's also unique because it's, it's one of the most confusing of all the minor prophets. In fact, it's kind of like that photo mosaic. It's like zooming in at this kaleidoscope of images that don't seem to make sense. So if you did your homework this past week and you read the book of Zechariah, you may have more than once found yourself wondering what in the world is going on. So for example, chapters one to six list eight different visions. Uh, and, and if you read those visions, some of them are confusing or, or downright bizarre. And, and then in chapters 7 and 8, there's two of Zechariah's sermons. And then in chapters 9 to 14, there's two oracles. And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason or rhythm for why Zechariah is putting things together the way he's doing. But if you zoom out, just like on that photo mosaic, if you zoom out, you can see a picture that Zechariah is painting. A third reason why this book is really unique from the other minor prophets is that it is the most messianic of all of the minor prophets. Zechariah talks more about the Messiah than any of the other minor prophets. It's quoted more often in the New Testament than any other Old Testament book except for the book of Isaiah. 
So the New Testament alludes to or quotes directly the book of Zechariah as many as 71 times in these short 14 chapters. So Martin Luther called the book of Zechariah the, the quintessence of the prophets. And one Bible teacher said that, that this is the most messianic of all the Old Testament books. So if you want a portrait of the Messiah, who it is that the people of God are waiting for, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better picture of him than the picture we see in the book of Zechariah. Some say there's as many as 40 different images of the Messiah in this little book. If we were to review them line by line, verse by verse, it would be kaleidoscopic and confusing. So what we're going to do this morning is just kind of categorize them into three main snapshots and hopefully get a big picture of the whole. So we're going to look today, with God's help, at the Messiah's identity, who is he, the Messiah's reception, how was he received when he came? And the Messiah's mission, what did he come to do? My prayer is that as you see this image of the Messiah from the book of Zechariah, that you will worship him, that you will worship him. Let's begin at the Messiah's identity. Who is the Messiah. Who is the one that God's people are waiting for? This is 550 years prior to the death of Christ. Zechariah writes, and he gives us a couple of snapshots of who this Messiah will be. First of all, he says he is the Son of God and Son of Man. Let's just go to Zechariah chapter 2, where we see, first of all, that this Messiah is truly God. Zechariah chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. I want you to notice very carefully the wording in verse 11. The one they're waiting for is God himself. You see that? I will dwell in your midst. But also, the one they're waiting for is sent by God. The Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So, Zechariah, who, who could be God himself and also sent by God himself? None other than the Son of God. But Zechariah also tells us that this Messiah is more than just son of God. He's also son of man. Go to chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2 and verse 8. Actually, chapter 3, verse 8. Sorry, chapter 3, verse 8. Where the prophet says, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. I will bring my servant the branch. You see that there? That's a name for the Messiah perhaps you've never heard, the branch. What is he talking about? Who is the branch? He's referring to a branch, think of it like a family tree, a branch in the family tree of David himself. Isaiah the prophet over 200 years earlier says this in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot 
from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Yesterday, we um, were in the backyard and we were trying to remove a big stump from a vine that was growing in our backyard. I said we, really the truth is my wife was doing it while I was out running errands. It was so much better that way. <laughs> but here's the thing, you can leave a stump and it looks like all is lost and it looks like this thing is gone and yet a shoot comes, a branch shoots off of that stump. That's kind of like what Isaiah is happening. Judah, the, the kingdom of David, it looks like it's gonna be destroyed, but God says a shoot, a branch is coming off that stump. 100 years after Isaiah, Jeremiah would say this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah says, a branch from the tree, the family tree of David is coming. Now, here's the question. Who is this son of God and son of man? Who is Zechariah talking about? Uh, listen to the words of Jesus and Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? By the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah. So, so what do you think about the Messiah? He says, whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Perhaps they had read Zechariah. Surely they had. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him, the Messiah, Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Here's Jesus' question. How can a son of David be the Lord of David? How? Only if he is truly God and truly man. Do you see how this is, this is giving us a picture of Christ himself? Jesus is truly God. Jesus himself, born of a virgin. He existed long before Bethlehem. And ages past, eternity past, he existed as truly, fully God. And he takes upon himself human flesh at the incarnation, what we celebrate every single Christmas. Truly God and truly man. I wonder if you're here this morning and you believe that Jesus is God. Do you believe that? Uh, recently, a uh, ministry called Ligonier did a, a survey. They call it the State of Theology. And they did it in 2020. And they found out that 30% of those who call themselves evangelicals believe that Jesus is just a good teacher and not God. 30% of people that call themselves evangelicals do not believe that Jesus is God. Can I just tell you something? That means, if that's true, that that 30% of people that call themselves evangelicals are not Christians. There is no such thing as a Christian that doesn't believe that Jesus is God. That's what a Christian is. He is God. 
but he's also truly man. I wonder if you think of Jesus being truly man, kind of like Clark Kent pretending, you know, that he's not Superman. And, and, and he goes to Lois with a, with a jar that he can't open. And he's kind of pretending, of course he can open it. He's Superman. But he, he's kind of under this charade, in disguise, as it were. That is not Jesus, the Son of Man. He is not pretending to be man. He is truly man. Everything that you are, human, yet without sin. Truly, completely man. This means that Jesus is someone that we can relate to, someone that we can approach, someone that we can come to, someone that we can confess to. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says, for all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus. I wonder if that's how you think of Jesus. Approachable, truly God and truly man. Zechariah gives us another snapshot of this Messiah when he shows us that he is priest and a king. He's a priest and he's a king. So if you know your Old Testament, you know that one thing that God's people were not supposed to do was mix the office of priest and king. There were priests and there were kings and they kind of stayed in their own lane. The, the, the priest didn't do the king's job and the king didn't do the priest's job. One example of this is the King Uzziah. You can read his story in uh, the book of Kings and Chronicles. And King Uzziah was having a really successful reign as a king and he was feeling pretty good about himself. So he decided to go into the temple and make a sacrifice on the altar of incense. And he goes into the temple and he prepares to offer a sacrifice. And you remember what happened to Uzziah? The hand that he reaches out to make the sacrifice with is stricken with leprosy. And he lived out the rest of his days with a leprous hand. Why? Because kings can't be priests, and priests can't be kings. This kind of separation of power built into the Old Testament system. Well, I want you to go to chapter 6 in Zechariah. Zechariah, of course, knows the story of Uzziah. He knows the Jewish system, and yet he's prophesying about a coming priest who's also going to be a king. Listen to verse 12. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Do you notice what Zechariah is prophesying? There is coming a royal kingly priest. Someone that will, in one person, hold both offices. If we want to zoom out a little bit from Zechariah, there's another office, really important office in the Old Testament. There's priests, there's kings. Anyone know what the third one is? Prophets. We're studying the prophets now. The prophets were those who declared the word of the Lord. So listen to Deuteronomy chapter 18. God says to Moses, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. 
So if you want to add on the side of your notes there, he is a priest, he is a king, and he is a prophet. In one person, there is all three offices fulfilled. Now maybe you're listening and you're thinking, why in the world do I care about having a prophet, a priest, and a king? It doesn't matter to me. It does, actually. You see, in our sin... We got one problem. Every single person in this room has one problem, but it's created three major symptoms. First of all, it's created ignorance. Sin creates ignorance. Listen, there's not a person in this room that was born knowing how to please God. You weren't born knowing that. You're ignorant. And by the way, your own mind, your own flesh deceives you. So you need someone like a, a prophet to come to you and tell you, Here's what it looks like to please God. Sin creates ignorance. Sin also creates guilt. Every single person in this room, you are born guilty before God. Right? Because when Adam fell, every single one of us fell. So we're born with ignorance, we're born with guilt, and then we're born bound. We're born in bondage because of our sin. Let me ask you a question. If you're in this room this morning and you think that you are somehow able to stop sinning on your own, you don't really understand sin. You might be able to stop one sin, but you cannot stop. You're bound. You're trapped in sin. So, so we need a prophet to speak to our ignorance. We need a priest to deal with our guilt. And we need a king to lead us and set us free from bondage. And in Christ, we have all three. Prophet, priest, and king. So what will the Messiah be like? He'll be son of God and son of man. He'll be prophet, priest, and king. But how will the Messiah be received? Zechariah tells us about the Messiah's reception. If you read through the book of Zechariah, you will see over and over again, Zechariah is telling us how God's people are going to respond to the Messiah when he comes. First of all, he will be celebrated. This is the passage we read earlier. Go to Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We, we often look at this story and we think, look how humble Jesus was riding on a donkey. Actually, it was pretty normal for a king to enter a city riding on a donkey if he was coming bringing peace. We see that multiple times in the Old Testament. So you, a king would enter a city on a charger, on a horse, if he came to fight. But if he came bringing peace, he would come in riding a donkey. And so Zechariah prophesies, there's someone going to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He's bringing peace, and everybody's going to celebrate. Of course. Why wouldn't they? He's bringing peace. He's bringing salvation. He's a king. And if you know the story of the Gospels, you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single one of us tells us the story of how Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem on a Sunday, just a few days before he would be betrayed. He would ride a donkey, and he would be celebrated as he entered into that city. 550 years before that day, Zechariah is prophesying this. 
he will be celebrated. Number two, he will be betrayed. The Messiah will be celebrated, but he'll also be betrayed. Go to chapter 11, Zechariah chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. Zechariah 11, verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. What in the world is Zechariah talking about? Zechariah is telling us the Messiah is going to be valued at 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Money is going to be thrown into the house of the Lord, and then it's going to be thrown to a potter. Again, who is this pointing to? Listen to Matthew chapter 27. It'll be on the screen if you want to follow along. Matthew 27. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and Judas went and hanged himself. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then, what was, fulfi- then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, if you're paying attention, you might have heard that and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we're in the book of Zechariah. And notice that Matthew says this was to fulfill what Jeremiah said. Some people look at this as reason to doubt the truthfulness of Scripture. If Matthew can't keep his prophets straight, how can we trust that he keeps his story straight when he tells us about Jesus? Or if, if the Holy Spirit can't preserve the text of Scripture so that it's got the right name in there, how can we trust this at all? There's a really simple solution to this difficulty. Matthew in Matthew 27 is actually quoting both Jeremiah 18 and 19 and this passage we just read in Zechariah. But Matthew only mentions the more well-known of the two prophets. But here's the point. Here's the point. This prophecy that Zechariah made is fulfilled. Jesus is indeed valued at 30 pieces of silver. The money is thrown into the house of the Lord and then it's given to a potter just like Zechariah said, the Messiah would be betrayed. The Messiah will be abandoned. In chapters 9 to 13, the Messiah is pictured as a shepherd come to gather God's people. And look at what Zechariah says in chapter 13, verse 7. Look with me, Zechariah 13, verse 7. Middle of the verse, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who is this stricken shepherd? You remember the night that Jesus was betrayed. He's with his disciples and he tells them, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And all the disciples are saying, we're not going to do that, Jesus. 
We're going to fight beside you, Jesus. We're not going to turn our backs on you, Jesus. We've got your back, Jesus. And Jesus quotes Zechariah, and he says in Matthew 26, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The Messiah will be abandoned. Number four, he will be pierced. He will be pierced. Go with me to chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, kids, to be pierced here, it's not talking about getting your, your ears pierced or something like that. To be pierced was to be stabbed, usually with a sword or a spear or something like that. But, but this person, this Messiah that is pierced, is pierced in such a way that everybody can see he's been pierced. Where does this point us to, church? Listen to John's gospel, John chapter 19. As Jesus is on the cross and it's nearing the time of Sabbath and the Pharisees say, we've got to get these bodies off the cross so we don't have to work on the Sabbath. Notice what John tells us. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, referring to the, to the Psalms. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Do you see the picture that Zechariah is painting for us? The Messiah will be celebrated and yet he'll be betrayed. He'll be abandoned and then he'll be pierced for everyone to see. I want to ask you, brother, sister, friend, what should we learn from the way that the Messiah was received? If I could say, first of all, I would encourage you, trust the Bible. Do you not see do you not see how 550 years prior, Zechariah is prophesying over and over again about events that happen in the life of Jesus and they happen just as he said? Will, will, will this not invite you, draw you to, to deeper confidence and faith in the word of God to believe that it's true enough to stake your life on its truth, even if the entire world will mock you for it? Do you not see it's worth trusting? Well, I want to suggest there's another application we ought to have for ourselves based on what we've just covered, the way that the Messiah was received. I think we should see all of these things and we should mourn. We should lament. Why? because it was our sin that did this to our Lord. 
we sang this earlier. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And it was my sin that held him there. I wonder, dear friend, if you believe that your sin is really that bad. Do you believe that your sin is so great that only a pierced Messiah could atone for that sin? Do you believe that your sin is that great, dear friend? Thankfully, the, the, the message of, of Zechariah doesn't end just with a pierced Messiah. In fact, the very, the very fact that Zechariah wrote these things 550 years prior to them happening means that this was always the plan of God. God had a mission in all of this. If you remember this last week, I, I told you the story of um, Albert Einstein riding on a train, remember? And he says, uh, he says I, I, I know who I am, but I don't know where I'm going, right? Jesus knew who he was, and he knew exactly where he was going. If you can get anything out of reading the gospel accounts and the life of Jesus, this is a man whose face was fixed, exactly knowing where he was going. So consider with me the Messiah's mission. What did he come to do? The recently departed Prince Philip once said that Jesus was an underprivileged working class victim of political and religious persecution. And I suggest to you that is not the Jesus we find in the Gospels. He is no victim. Not in a sense, he is. He certainly didn't deserve what happened to him. But Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. He died on purpose. All of this was planned in the mind of God before you said your first words. This is part of a plan. So what did he come to do? He came to die to give us righteousness. He will die to give us righteousness. I want you to go in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. One of Zechariah's eight visions is about the high priest, Joshua. He was the high priest during those days. And in that vision, we get a little hint about what this Messiah is coming to do. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Now Joshua, again, that's the high priest. Joshua was standing before an angel clothed with filthy garments. Joshua's dressed in dirty clothes, standing before a bright and holy angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. This is the high priest. This is the most holy of all the citizens of Judah. And Zechariah tells us that Joshua, the high priest, is dressed in filthy clothes. What does that tell us? If the high priest is wicked, what hope is there for any of us? And yet, notice what this story tells us. God is going to give Joshua, the high priest, new clothes. 
righteous clothes. God is going to take away the filthy clothes of Joshua the high priest and give him clean clothes. Notice how swiftly this is going to happen. Verse 9, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 9, the prophet says, or God says through the prophet, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. God is going to, in a day, in a moment, he's going to take away your sin and clothe you with righteousness. How? Go to chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. Verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So once again, the, the pierced Messiah. And, and then in verses 11 to 14, Zechariah says that every individual must respond to the pierced Messiah themselves. A wife cannot cling to her husband's coattails. Children can't cling to their parents. Every individual must look upon the Messiah for themselves and respond to him for themselves. And then notice what happens when we do that in chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Here's what Zechariah is saying. If you look in faith on the pierced Messiah, God will cleanse you of your unrighteousness by looking upon him. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange, that God takes your sin and treats Christ as if he committed your sin, and he takes Christ's righteousness and he gives it freely to you. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of this is being prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before it happens. I was trying to think of a helpful way to illustrate this great exchange for you, and I couldn't help but think about an alley in Columbia. We were there in February and March of this year to finalize the adoption and bring our little boy home. And we had done all the paperwork, done all the visits, and it was just time for the actual signing of the paper that makes him ours. And we pulled into this kind of somewhat sketchy alley and uh, this Colombian street and our driver says, just wait, I'm leaving. And we said, okay. And we locked the doors and stayed in the van. And eventually he comes back and he says to me, and Ezekiel, come on, come with me. And so I followed him. And we go into this kind of dilapidated building, uh, you know, open air, flies buzzing everywhere, little waste uh, basket on the floor, this desk kind of greasy smudged up with ink. And 
a lady says in Spanish to our driver that I'm supposed to sign some papers. And I look at the papers, and I write my name. And that's it. There wasn't a parade. There wasn't any fireworks. There was just my name signing on a piece of paper. But in that moment, something incredible happened. I want you to understand. Think about with me what happened. In that moment, all of a sudden, all of Ezekiel's problems, all of his medical needs, all, everything, all of it comes to me. And all of everything that I have, which isn't much, but anything good that I have, all of a sudden goes to him. And all of a sudden, all of my resources and all of my life is poured out to help and bless him. And everything hard and difficult and bad that he has that needs help with, that is now coming to me. That is just a tiny little glimpse of what you receive when you look upon him whom we have pierced. When you look on him, all of your sin, all of it, not just the sin you did yesterday, the sin you did now, the sin you're doing right now, all of it goes on him. And he says, all of my life and all that I am is poured out for the sake of making you look like me. And everything good that he has and everything good that he earned and his complete perfection and fulfilling of the law, that righteousness is given to you so that you might be, as the hymn writer says, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, can I plead with you something? You don't need to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. You don't. Can I suggest to you, you can't. You can't. For you to clean yourself up, to try to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus, is like one of my kids taking a filthy, greasy rag and using it to wipe off their face to make themselves presentable before church. It doesn't really clean them. It makes them worse. Your best day, your most righteous deed is like filthy rags, Isaiah says. Stop cleaning yourself up to come to Jesus. Come to him and let him cleanse you and take away your iniquity in a day. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, listen to me. No matter how dirty you've become, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how many steps you've taken away from Christ, it's always one step back. One if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's written to Christians. One, can you think of any other relationship where that's true? Where you can wander and wander and wander and take one step back. That's only Jesus. He died to give us his righteousness. Number two, he will rise to give us life. Once you notice back in chapter 12, verse 11, something that's easy to miss. It says, they will, um, verse 11, chapter 12, verse 11. Actually, I'm sorry, verse 10. Um, when they look on me, on him they have pierced. Notice, he says, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. The pierced one is speaking. He's speaking in the present tense about his death in the past tense. How, how is that even possible? 
because Christ will not stay in the tomb. He will not stay dead. Yes, he stays pierced. Even today, if you were to die today and see Christ, you will see pierced hands and feet. But he is not dead. He's not he said, when you look on me, the one that you pierced, the one that you put to death, you will look on me, and I will see you looking on me. Zechariah is, is just, just subtly foreshadowing the eventual resurrection of Christ. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you looked on him in faith? Dear friend. Finally, Zechariah shows us that Jesus will return. The Messiah will return to make all things new. If you read the book of Zechariah, you'll notice he prophesies a lot about the punishment of God's enemies. He also writes a lot about coming prosperity for God's people. And our, our Jewish friends and neighbors will look at prophecies like that and they'll say, aha, that hasn't happened yet. Jesus can't be the Messiah. We don't have prosperity yet, do we? Not completely. God's enemies haven't been punished yet, have they? Not completely. We prayed about our holy judge, but we haven't yet seen his judgment enacted completely yet in this life. And so our Jewish friends and neighbors will, will look and they'll say, see, the Messiah has not yet come. I think that their problem is that they don't see the perspective of the, of the prophets. Now imagine if you're driving on a highway and at a distance you see a glorious mountain range. From a distance, it seems like it's all the same, right? All the peaks of those mountains are side by side. But the closer you get to the mountains, you see that there is great chasms and valleys in between each one of those peaks. So too with the prophets. They see from a distance and it all to them looks like one coming of the Messiah. But we now know that in Christ, we see there is a first and a second coming of Christ. So Jesus will come again and he will make all things new. Listen to Zechariah chapter 14, verse four. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies between, between or before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So the one half of the Mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Verse nine. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. One of the saddest things I saw when I visited Israel a few years ago was the thousands and thousands of graves on the Mount of Olives. Why are there graves all over? Some say 150,000 bodies buried on the Mount of Olives. Because they've read Zechariah chapter 14, and they rightly believe that the Messiah will one day come and set his feet on the Mount of Olives. That's what Zechariah teaches. And they want a front row seat to Messiah coming. But 
here's what they miss. Here's what they tragically miss. Messiah has already come. And when he comes again and touches his feet on the Mount of Olives, it will not matter where you've been buried. To get a front row seat, you don't bury your body in the right place. You trust that Jesus died in your place. But make, make no mistake, friend, he will return to make all things new. I'm gonna ask you if you will, to bow your heads with me. In just a moment, we're gonna celebrate Jesus' death by taking communion together. But first, I want us to take a moment to examine ourselves and pray. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I wanna challenge you, don't, don't wait. Don't wait. Repent and believe today. Look on the one we have pierced today. Trust him today. If you want to talk to someone more about that, you're welcome to head to the white flag and someone will be there that'll be happy to talk with you about what it means to look on him in faith. Most of us in this room are followers of Jesus. Is Jesus the one even now that you're waiting for? I wonder how many of us have heard this so many times, it's old hat to us. We yawn and our eyes glaze over. We've lost our sense of wonder in the Messiah, that he really came, that he really fulfilled these prophecies, that he's really coming again. Are your hopes in him? Are you praising him? Are you living in obedience to him? However far you've wandered, Christian, it's just one step back. Tell him you're sorry. We'll give you a couple of moments to pray. Prepare your heart. Examine yourself. Tell him sorry where you need to tell him that you're sorry. And receive his forgiveness if you're a child of God.